Early this year, um, I heard Bishop Curry in an interview with Judy Woodruff on PBS. And my husband and I were transfixed. I mean, we were transformed during a really just seven-minute interview. And we felt imbued with hope and optimism and, yes, love. Everything seemed different as if there had been a turning of the kaleidoscope. I then, of course, devoured his book, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. And here's what I learned. This man descended from slaves, sharecroppers, and ministers, and now the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church of the United States gives us an inspirational roadmap for living a life of love even in the face of insurmountable challenges. You might enter this conversation or book as a skeptic, but I guarantee you will leave inspired. It is a distinct honor to welcome the most reverend Bishop Michael Curry to Just the Right Book. Welcome. Oh, Roxanne, thank you. What an introduction. I was going to say hello. I didn't know what you were going to (laughs) say. Oh, that's great. Thank you for having me. And that conversation with Judy was, and she's incredible. Oh, she, that was great. That was great. So I want to start with this. Um, I came across uh, one of the Instagram feeds I have is the Beinecke Library, um, which you might be familiar with as someone who uh, went to Divinity School in New Haven, actually across street from where I live. Nope. Really? <laughs> yeah, I live on Lawrence Street right there. Oh, okay. Uh, and they posted this poem um, that I'm going to read on the first day of Black History Month. And the poem is uh, from Langston Hughes, bring me all your dreams, you dreamers, bring me all of your heart melodies that I might wrap them in a blue cloud cloth away from the two rough fingers of the world. You say in the book that the language of dreams is in fact the language of hope, but we are, as we know too well, yes, living in the two rough fingers of the world. (laughs) And the logical question to ask is, How impossible is it to believe that love is the way when it seems like hate and despair and division surrounds us? Wow. Well, I I mean, I mean, Roxanne, the reality is it in the end, it becomes a matter of faith. And I don't mean that in terms of a particular religious tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you almost have to trust um, and then take the risk to live on that, um, live that out. Now, there's some evidence, it seems to me. Uh, one, it's not easy. Um, um, that we have the human capacity to love and that's part, part of our grandeur, but we also have the human capacity um, um, to do the opposite of love, <laughs> do that which is unloving. Um, and so we, you know, we're a mixer. We're somebody wants to say there's a little bit of good in the be- worst of us, a little bit of bad in the best of us, and that's, you know, that that's to be human. We, and and so it's not easy, and it's not easy in particular when love is not reciprocated or received, um, or accepted. Right. And and that's when it's tough. When I was growing up, I remember um, folk. I mean, I the old folk used to quote. They didn't know they were quoting Booker T. Washington. I later found out. He was the one who had said it, but they would say, never let any man drag you so low as to hate them. Yeah. And, and that was said, you know, I mean, I learned that in the context of, of segregation and civil rights and that kind of thing. And folk would say that all the time, never let anybody drag you so low as to hate them. Um, and, and, but the truth of the matter is it's, it's sometimes easier to respond in, in pure anger. There's nothing wrong with appropriate anger. I mean, we're human, so we're going to have feelings. But the reality is, if you live there, um, it will eat you up. <laughs> no matter what it does to the other, it doesn't do anything to the other person. That's, it will eat you, it will consume you, um, and, and it will take you apart. And so the reality is, 
the way of um, the kind of unselfish love that I'm talking about that really is committed to seeking the good and the welfare and the well-being of others as well as the self, that way of love really in the long run is a way of life. Um, and it's a way of life that makes life livable, even though it's difficult to do. <laughs> if you're like me and have been thinking about losing the same five pounds or 10 pounds or 15 pounds over and over again and have tried diets that don't work out, you might want to do what I ended up doing is I stumbled on Noom.com. And what I liked about Noom is it didn't just talk about what you ate, but how you eat or what your goals are and helps you build new habits. And I like it since it doesn't take a lot of time, it's personalized, it seems to understand that you need some food knowledge and some flexibility in order to meet your goals. So I loved their, you know, I guess I would call it a cognitive behavioral approach. And I really would encourage you to try it because based on what I read, 80% of people who start this program finish it, and over 60% have stuck with it after a year. So that, that sounds pretty appealing. So I encourage you uh, to try it. And all you need to do to sign up for a trial is go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com, slash just the right book. So I, I'm excited about it, and I hope you sign up and get excited about it as well. And, you know, you talk in the book is, is that it doesn't mean that life's not a struggle. And, you know, you talk, you talk about um, Nellie Goldie Royster Strayhorn, oh, grandmother. Your, yeah. Yeah. your grandmother, yeah. and... So when we try to live this kind of life of love, where do we place the struggle that you're going to run into along the way? How do we sort of encompass that, register it, and still move to the next stage of continuing to love? How do you do that? That, you know, I mean, this is part of my, I learned about this way of love from people who were involved in civil rights. Mm -hmm. which meant they were intrinsically involved in a struggle. Yeah. And in a struggle against the odds. Um, I mean, 1956 and 1955 and the Montgomery bus boycott, the odds of that succeeding were not great. It wasn't clear how that, how that struggle would eventually work itself out. Um, growing up, we didn't necessarily, I mean, my grandmother never imagined a Barack Obama. He wasn't born yet anyway, but I mean, never, she never <laughs> even imagined that that was possible. You know what I mean? That was just simply not on the horizon, even of hope. Yeah. Uh, and so it was in that context, um, I don't want to say it was all bleak, but in that context, um, I mean, you know, uh, 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, my Aunt Callie taught Sunday school in that church. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, in that context, that's where I learned about love most profoundly. People who would say, never let anybody drag you so low as to hate them. Mm. Um, you can change things and it's a struggle, but you can change things by the power um, of a love that is yours, but is not just your own, that has its source and its origin, ultimately in, in God. And, and if that is true, um, then you can make it no matter what. In the end, as a friend of mine says, in the end, love is going to win. It won't be easy. It will be a struggle. It's going to be hard. And, and folk in, in that context understood that whether you like it or not, life is struggle. Human progress, Dr. King said it well. He said, progress does not happen on the wheels of inevitability. Um, it only happens by struggle and strife and hard work and dogged determination um, and unwillingness to give up. And that's been true of any kind of human progress for the good. Um, it has taken work and that dogged determination not to quit. Um, and, and so love has the capacity to help me engage that in ways that do not dehumanize me and do not dehumanize others. Yeah. 
And that's that's where love, again, you know, I, and I know the problem in English is we got the one word love. We don't have nuances. Um, you know, we, we don't have, um, we just don't have the nuances. Um, you know, the Greek language that certainly of the New Testament um, in Hebrew, all of these traditions, other languages have nuances on love. And so when you're talking about romantic love, there's one word for that. When you're talking about, friend, you know, eros um, in Greek, um, uh, friendship, philia, um, um, the kind of love that I'm talking about, agape, um, uh, that, that unselfish, sacrificial, almost selfless love that paradoxically helps you discover the real self. That way of that kind of love is the love that that makes a difference. And Roxanne, it's the only thing that ever has. I, I was in the, uh, well, I'm not sure, probably fourth, third or fourth grade. And I remember coming home and my father asked me, did you, you know, get your, um, did you get your medicine today? I said, what medicine? I mean, for a, sec for a second, I didn't get what he was talking about. And he said, did you get a little sugar cube? And I said, Oh yeah, yeah, I got yeah. It had a little sugar cube and it had a little, I think it was red something on it, and we ate the sugar cube. And um, I'm sure they told us what it was for. But when you're a kid, you just do what the teacher tells you to do. And 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 he was those were the days. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not true anymore. But it's you know, so I didn't make too much of it. And he was kind of happy about it. Years later, um, and this really was years later in the 1990s. Um, he had had a stroke and he was in intensive care and I was in the room with him and his sister, um, Carrie. Um, anyway, she was rubbing his legs and singing songs, singing hymns, singing old hymns. And I asked her why was she rubbing his legs? Because he was still, he was coming out of the surgery and he was still, you know, relatively um, sedated. And she said, that's what mama used to do when he was a little boy. I said, what do you mean? She said, didn't you know? I said, didn't you, didn't I know what? She said, didn't you know your daddy had polio? Mm. And, I, and I realized, I said, he always walked with a slight limp. I knew that. Um, and he jokingly called himself Hopalong Cassidy. But I never knew why until that. He never that told you the story. And then I realized why he smiled when his son had that little sugar cube with the yeah. vaccine for polio. Johannes Salk and all of those other researchers and folk who did that, they sacrificed. They sacrificed time. They sacrificed labor. God knows they didn't see their families because they kept working like these researchers working on a COVID vaccine. I guarantee you there are people sacrificing time and energy, not for themselves, but for the good they can do. That's what love looks like. That's what I'm talking about. And that that kind of love and devotion uh, for the good and welfare of others, as well as the self, that is a game changer in human life. Mm -hmm. Always has been and always will be. You know, so speaking of your dad, um, who was a minister also. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to put put the story in Chicago. Your your uh, mom's in school studying math, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, at the University of Chicago? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And uh, your grandfather had been a Baptist minister. Both both your father uh, and your mother were raised in the Baptist church. Both of them were, yeah. That story about your dad going to an Episcopal church for the first time with your mother yeah. just had a, I had a visceral reaction to the power of what happened in that church. Tell us that story. You know, it's funny. He um, he would tell us that story as kids, and we got tired of hearing it. Um, and my kids don't want to hear it either. But that that's sort of the way it goes. But uh, yeah, he. Uh, I mean, my father grew up. His father was a Baptist preacher, and his grandfather was some kind of preacher in those days. You're getting back that far. Who knows what they were? Just what that meant? What that really meant, right? <laughs> And um, but he grew up in that Baptist tradition and he didn't know anything about the Episcopal Church, had never encountered it um, until he met my mother. And and so they were dating and they went, she invited him to go to church with him. And so he went to church um, with her and it was an Episcopal Church and they were having communion. And um, and and during the communion, for, well, first of all, they got to the church and they were either the only or of among, among a few black people in the congregation. So it was a predominantly white setting. At that time, this happened in Southern Ohio. 
Um, and so they went in the, we were in the church and time for communion. And she went up to receive communion at the, at the altar rail. People would go up and the priest would come along with the bread and then with the cup, the wine in a common cup. Well, daddy was looking and, you know, everybody got the bread. That was, you know, fine. But then he noticed they only had this one cup. Um, and in the Baptist church, everybody has their own individual cup. And he had never seen one cup, people drinking from the same chalice. And he kept watching and he said he watched when the person on the other side of in front of my mother was white and that person drank from the cup. Next person was white, they drank from the cup. And there was my mother and she was dark complected. There was no question about her. Yeah, they weren't gonna mistake her for something. They weren't gonna mistake her. And she drank from the cup and he said he watched to see what the next person would do. And that next person drank from the cup and on and on and on, like nothing was happening, like it was normal. And he said, any church where black folk and white folk drink from the same cup knows something about the teachings of Jesus that I want to be a part of. And he spent most of his ministry in the work of civil rights and reconciliation. And um, he committed himself. It was really a remarkable, I mean, thinking about it now, yeah. It was, it was what year would that have been? That would have been in the late 40s. It would have been in the late 40s. So do you think that was true about that parish or about the because that seems when you think about how ingrained Jim Crow and segregation was in those days, it's hard to even imagine. Like, was it about that minister, that church, that or was it? Who knows? I would, it wouldn't have been, on one hand, it would have been theoretically true in terms of the expectations of the church, but practically on the local level, I think it would have varied from congregation to congregation. Yeah. And certainly in the South, it wouldn't have necessarily been the case. The further South you went, it wouldn't have been the case. Um, so it was, it was not an anomaly, but it was not the norm either. <laughs> you know what I mean? At the time. They were in the right church with the right, right, you're right, the right pastor. And here you are. Here you are, the first black bishop. Yeah. That's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. How aware were you coming along that it this was going to be different or a struggle or change your role or change the church? I can't say that I was aware. I mean, certainly growing up, you're not aware of it. I mean, I, yeah. I, we always, I mean, daddy was always real clear that uh, whatever you, he would, I mean, he would say, whatever you're going to, whatever you all decide to do, you're talking to me and my sister, whatever you decide to do, do something that makes a difference for somebody else beside yourself. <laughs> he, you know, you've been put here to serve. The way he would say it was um, periodically, he would say, remember the Lord didn't put you here just to consume oxygen. Um, you know, so you're here for a positive purpose to actually give something as well as to receive, but to give something. So I went off to school pretty much thinking that, you know, when I was a little kid, you want to be like your dad, you know, of course, but then you kind of evolve out of that. Um, and I worked, uh, I actually worked on, when I say I, this is, sounds a little bit more grand than it was, uh, I volunteered for Bobby Kennedy's campaign when he was running. This was yeah. when he was for Senate in New York State. And um, when I say I volunteered, that means I licked envelopes and knocked on doors. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't an exalted position. You weren't uh, writing his speeches? No, he, <laughs> he didn't ask me to write the speeches, no. He <laughs> would so, now. That, well, maybe, yeah, <laughs> sure. So, you know, so I did that and, you know, didn't know what, what I was gonna kind of do with my own life. And eventually um, realized I took a course in college where I actually had to read the writings of Dr. King who I knew about. I mean, I actually, when I was five years old, daddy took me to some kind of, I don't remember, it was a rally or something. And Dr. King came to speak either in Buffalo or in Rochester. I can't remember where we were. And I was about five years old. And all the preachers, everybody had to get up and give a speech, a great oration. And um, I never heard King speak because I fell asleep. He was the last one to speak. <laughs> so, so I missed my one opportunity to actually hear him speak. But I actually got in college to read what he wrote um, and, to, and to read some of his works in more depth beyond some of the speeches, in fact. 
um, and realized that, that he saw faith, religious faith, as having the possibility of transforming both the social structures that can bind and enslave folk and the human heart that can bind us as well. And that's when I kind of realized, you know, maybe the ministry is a way that Michael Curry can make his contribution. And maybe that fits in with who, my family and life, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up doing it. And that was back in the 1970s, mid 70s, and been doing it for years. And like Maya Angelou says, quoting that old spiritual, she said, wouldn't take nothing from a journey now. Mm. Uh, it was a good move, Bishop. It was a good move. It was a good it, move. It, so it, that, those, uh, that story reminds me of two questions. Uh, one is, these days remind me a lot of 1968. And I was in college in 1968. I was in college in Washington, uh, DC. Oh, we really? And oh. uh, there comes April 4th. Yeah. There comes June 5th. And there had been so much optimism around Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And then there, shockingly both killed within months of each other. Right. I remember I was in my dorm on the corner of 19th and F and there were tanks on the street because of the riots and the burning over on 14th street That's that right. was, was going on. And yet in the book, you talk about that even with all that hopelessness and despair, that actually love did, love and hope emerged from that period of time. How did, how did that happen? And do you think that's like now? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, love emerged from the ashes. Um, it, it did, but it wasn't easy. Um, there was a lot of anger, a lot of hope. I mean, hope dashed. There is nothing worse than hope dashed on the altars of reality. Mm -hmm. it, it is. You know, I mean, remember in Dante's, in the uh, uh, the Divine Comedy, um, Above the Gates of Hell, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Yeah. And it is, to, to be without hope is to be in hell. I mean, that that is, as long as you got some hope, just a little bit, you don't have to have a lot. If human beings have hope, they can make, they can, we can endure the unendurable if we have to. Mm. Um, but gosh, the absence of hope, that that is a nightmare. Um, and so, you know, that was a moment um, um, and actually had been a part of a period of time when people were beginning to, is this, you know, is the country going to fly apart? Remember when the riot started in 65 was what? Yeah. yeah. Between 65 and 68, the country was in turmoil, both racial turmoil and the Vietnam War conflict over the Vietnam right. War. It was really escalating. Um, and it was a tumultuous time. And, and that's where the struggle, it is, it's in those moments, similar to where we are now, different, different context, but not unsimilar. We've been this way before, and it's important to remember, we have been this way, and we have survived, may, hopefully better than we were going in. But it was in this time that King started becoming frustrated. I mean, when he died, he was really frustrated um, and just didn't know how the movement was going to go. Um, he was under severe criticism. I mean, he really was. And he began to say over and over and over again, we will either learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish together as fools. Mm -hmm. Choice is ours, chaos or community. Um, and, 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 and in the last few months of his life, there was a moment, and it's on a recording, I don't think it was actually in, in a book, King blurted out um, in, a, in one context, he just said, I know it's against the odds. I know a lot of people don't buy it, but I will not give up on love. Mm. And, and Bishop- We must not give up on love, even when the citadel, the temple of democracy itself is breached by hatred and bigotry and bile. We must not give up on love. Mm. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. No, well, I, I shouldn't have no. uttered anything. But, it, it, you know, the thing that I'm struck by as we watch what happened in 2020 with 
on the issue of race and, and the awareness that grew and grew and grew about the travesty mm-hmm. of criminal, the criminal justice system uh, towards Blacks. Do you feel like things are better from 68? Oh, from 68? Yeah. Definitely yes, but also no. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, there, the, 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 let there be no doubt. First of all, Michael Curry would not be presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in 1968. Yeah, damn straight. <laughs> I mean, it's that was guaranteed. So that, I mean, that Barack Obama would not have, I mean, there's a lot that would not, you know, Kamala Harris would not be vice president. I mean, that, I mean, you, you can go through those kinds of things. Oprah Winfrey was a kid. <laughs> I mean, so you can go through and the black middle class has grown. But poverty has increased. Yeah, we we're still having it, it has increased not just with black and brown and and peoples of color, um, but the, the poverty among white people. Um, I mean, the poverty in this country is real, um, and and we've not we've not found the solutions. We've made yeah, some me, progress, but we've it, not. Found it. And it seems to me that you know, there's a number of new books out on poverty. It seems to me that that core issue, because that does make people hate, that does make them get unhealthy, that does make them take drugs, that does contribute to criminal behavior, you know, that, and why do you think that's such a stubborn and increasing and unacceptable problem that we're not solving? I I think on one level, we've not um, garnered a national resolve yeah, will be better than this. We will marshal. This is the country that rebuilt Europe after the Second World War. I yeah. mean, we, we we need a Marshall Plan uh, to make poverty history in this country and around the world. It can be done. We 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 do. And to garner the resources, to get all the brain power that we've got, uh, to marshal industry. To mar- I mean, a collective decision. And maybe we'll get there. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful. Maybe we will get there because if we do, we can do it. <laughs> We yeah. actually can do it, uh, but it it's going to involve massive investments in children and in education um, from the time that child is conceived in the womb to the time they pop out and to the time that every footstep that they take at every child in this country um, has every opportunity for all of the educational possibilities in life for me. I mean, that level of, com- of social commitment is what's going to be required. Um, if we can garner that, we can do it. Um, whether we will, I don't know, but we can do it um, and we can make it better. So, you know, I, I, I think the reality is a lot of what we're seeing in white supremacy, um, the rise of that, a lot of that is happening among poor folk. You're right. People who have not benefited from the prosperity of this country and I'm not benefiting, so I blame Mexicans at the border. You yeah. see how it works? Zero-sum game. Yeah. And so, I mean, I get it. I mean, it's it's not just pure bile or pure hatred. It's not. Some of it is coming from despair. And fear. And fear. Yes. And so we, we've got to chip away at that. Um, and, and I think we can. And 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 there there's some efforts I, I think that are good. I'm hopeful. Let me tell you what gave me hope last year. What gave me hope was the movement of primarily, but not exclusively young people. Yeah. After the series of killings from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor and the series, um, something did happen when America saw that police officer with his knee on the neck of that man snuffing the breath of life that God gave him, snuffing it out like he was nothing. And because most people are decent people. Most, right, and I right. think when people saw that, it was a moment of awakening. But, but it was the young people. Who got out there. They hit the streets. And I mean, they, they hit the streets. It wasn't my gang. It wasn't, I mean, it, it, they hit the streets. I mean, um, clergy were calling me, but these were young clergy, not me. Um, you know, I was giving them what advice I could. I mean, but they were hitting the streets. And I have never seen in the history of this country a multiracial and multi-ethnic, as diverse a coalition of people hitting the streets, 
for the most part, nonviolently. If there was trouble, it was caused by people on the fringe, not by those young people who were protesting. And they were protest. Their protest was a cry for America to be what we say we are. And this is the generation that didn't grow up with civics. We didn't teach them the Declaration of Independence, and yet they were proclaiming it. We didn't teach them the uh, Gettysburg Address, and yet they were proclaiming it. This was the generation that grew up with Martin Luther King's birthday. And, and and they knew intuitively that America can be America for everybody, that, that you said liberty and justice for all, let's make it real. And they hit the street. Roxanne, that's hope. Yeah, I totally that. agree. It wasn't completely organized. I mean, there were elements of organized, but it wasn't like there was a great, an, a national commission that thought this out in the strategic plan for how we're going to, it just, I mean, this is like spirit. It was organic, exactly. It evolved. That's a sign of hope um, for me that that level of pragmatic idealism. Now, it must be translated into political reality and into economic realities. But without the idealism, all you have is rank pragmatism. There must be an ideal, a lofty goal, a conviction, a dominating conviction, um, like the old, like the psalmist says in the Hebrew scriptures, set me upon a rock that is higher than I. There must be something that ennobles and lifts us up that we then exercise pragmatic work to make that ideal real. Mm-hmm. We saw a glimpse of that. And those young people walking, marching last summer, last yeah. and summer. And, and you know, you, you talk. One of the things I want to make sure we'll get to. Uh, there's a couple more things I want to make sure we cover before we get to uh, oh, questions. Sure. But um, one of the things that this conversation reminds me of is, and I'm going to sort of jumble together a couple of things, but mm-hmm. I bet you'll you'll figure out an answer to what. To I, I'm confident. Bishop, you'll figure this out. So here, here's all the here's all the things sort of jumbling around uh, in my brain. Um, one is you talk about faith, and for many of us, faith has a religious context. Um, religion uh, of religious affiliation in the United States is in a decline. A lot of young people say they have no religious affiliation. So what form does faith or can faith take outside of a religious context? And I'll read something you wrote in the book, which I thought was just fabulous. So this is from A Raisin in the Sun. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the mother, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Benita's mother. Yeah. Leaves in God is going to count on is going to count on God. And Benita says, Mama, you don't understand. It's all a matter of ideas. And God is just one idea I don't accept. It's not important. I'm not going to go out and be immoral or commit crimes because I don't believe in God. I don't even think about it. It's just that I got tired of him getting credit for all the things the human race achieves through its own stubborn effort. Effort. There simply is no blasted God. There is only man and is he who makes miracles. So how would you talk to Benita or the youth or all the people that don't have a religious affiliation? Well, you know... Well, with Benita, you know, I tell Benita, you know, how do you think your mother got over? How did she get as far as she got against the odds? I mean, really against the odds. And I could tell you about my grandmother. You mentioned Nellie Strayhorn, uh, who, who would have been a grandchild of her grandparents would have been slaves. Um, uh, but she grew up a, grand, uh, a sharecropper's uh, a child well, right and um you know and bury you know people in those days had a lot of children and they buried you know a lot of them didn't live didn't make it through childbirth and that kind of thing and i don't know it was one or two i know that she buried in childbirth um 
and sent sons off to war, the Second World War. Um, fortunately, they came back, but lost other relatives in that war. Um, and then she turned around and uh, when my, my mother had a massive cerebral hemorrhage when I was a kid, and um, I talk about that in the book, and um, she turned around in her 70s at that point um, and helped my father uh, raise these two children, um, this boy and this girl. Um, and she continued to do it with, I mean, you know, I mean, everybody's grandma is a hero, but she was. I saw this woman when I look back on her. I saw this woman endure some things that were really unendurable in many respects. Um, she grew, uh, her childhood was, was shrouded in hooded night riders um, in Eastern North Carolina, not far yeah. from where I am right now. I mean, it, it was, it was, she grew up and that was her world um, and the world didn't give her much. And, you know, and somehow she made it anyway. Now, I had to ask myself the question, how did she do it? There used to be a song, a gospel song, Mahalia Jackson used to sing, How I Got Over. And I asked, how did grandma get over? And part of the way, and my grandmother was a domestic worker. She cleaned folks' houses and put a daughter and two sons, got them through college. Wow. Now, how, how did she... How did she do that? Cleaning homes, cleaning houses her whole life. I mean, how did she do that? Um, I know I know how she got over it. She used to drag us to church with us in the summer when we would be there and we'd go to uh, her Baptist church. You know, daddy was an Episcopal and her daughters, but, but grandma was a dying wool rot rib Baptist. And all I knew is I saw when grandma would be in that church and that old preacher got to preaching and uh, the choir got to singing that there was something that happened. There was a presence um, that somehow gave her a strength that mingled with her own and gave her the ability to live life and even, if you will, march through hell for a heavenly cause if she had to. Now, when I say, how did that woman know how to do that? She figured out how to live life in an insane context and stay sane. Now, how did she do that? I'm telling you, God has something to do with that. And I just figured if it was good enough for her, it's good enough for me. And I believe it's for anybody who wants to make it in this world. You don't have to believe the way I believe. Um, I, I, one of my favorite shows, I know this is probably ridiculous. I don't know if you ever watched Young Sheldon. Um, oh, I, mean, I know the show. <laughs> I, I love that show. There's a scene, and the mother is like really religious and she kind of gets obnoxious with it too. Um, and the whole fact, there's a lot of spoofing around all of that. But at one point she says she's going to church, uh, wants to know who's gonna go to church with her. And, and the husband, he's got football practice, so he's got to meet with the coaches. And the older son, he said, oh, I got to be with dad and, you know, do football. Um, and, and Sheldon says, I'll go. And the sister says to Sheldon, she said, you don't believe in God. And Sheldon says, well, no, but I believe in mom. Mm. Sometimes that's enough. Yeah. To, to right. get the wisdom of, of others and to live that Sometimes that's enough. I just know that, that the struggle in the work of, of human progress, in the work of helping us to be more than we would be on our own, by our own self-interest, in that work and in that labor, Dr. King was right. He said, we need cosmic companionship. Mm. We've got to do our part, but we need God to help us do our part too. Mm. somehow out of that partnership um we human beings have have made progress and moved forward and and the truth is if you look at most of the 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 social the, i want to call them social engineers the social architects and engineers the people who have been transformative agents and instruments in human history and society they've had some religious tradition behind them yeah and there's a reason you somehow need some transcendent power to help you in this mundane world. <laughs> you just yeah. do. And it's not, it has nothing to do with us um, not having our own capabilities. It has to do with having cosmic companionship, partnership. I, I got love what that I got, term. I need God. Huh? I love that term, cosmic companionship. Cosmic companionship. Yeah, that was king. <laughs> it was, yeah. So Bishop, in the book, uh, among the million things I loved about it, you know, I I am a pragmatic person. And so, you know, the way for me to get my arms around these 
extraordinary concepts is mm -hmm. to think about, okay, what do I got to get out there and do? Yeah. And you, what you did here in the book, and I'd love you to cover some of them is you actually, if any of us think that our own little action in our own little world doesn't have tentacles and doesn't have reach, you remind us in the book that it absolutely does. So yeah. share with us a couple of the things that any of us, any of us starting like two minutes after this conversation ends can do. There's a saying from John Wesley, the founder of the old Methodist movement. He said, do all the good you can in every way you can with everybody you can. Just do all the good you can. I, I really do believe that do, a, that's what a life of love looks like, that uh, passionately committed to doing the good in every way that I can in the sphere of my influence. And by doing that, I may have impact. It may be like a butterfly effect. I may not see the result of that, but it will have impact beyond what, what I know. And the more of us who are doing that, the impact becomes greater. Um, and, and I just believe that practically, what is the good that I can do? Um, I was, I was um, in an interview a while back with um, a, a business magazine and um, they, and this was about love. And, and um, the, the interviewer said, you know, the religious language doesn't necessarily communicate to the corporate world. I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll grant you All that. Right. <laughs> fair. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and she said, how does this translate into um, a world, into our world where we are, where most of our subscribers are? And I said, well, it's the difference between me and we. Mm -hmm. If it's all about me, that's not love. But if it's about we, that includes me. And that's what love is going to look like. So when you're making decisions, is it just about me? And I say me, I'm talking about me or mine or my, yeah. you know, um, if it's just about me, that's not, that's not what love looks like. But if it's about we, it's about a greater good, about a greater whole. Um, if it blesses and benefits others beyond just me or just my own group or just my own self-interest, that's that now you're talking about love. I said that translates into politics, that tra that translates into uh, business, that translates into every human endeavor, and it makes all the difference in the world. It it really does. And so I forgot what the original question was. Well, though. I'll come back to you in a second, but you're reminding me of something else that I think was a, a very powerful distinction that we need to remember. Mm -hmm. And that was that you said loving someone doesn't mean you agree with them, mm -hmm. right? Because I think mm -hmm. we, we've really gotten to think if we don't agree on politics and we don't agree on this and that, you know what? I, I don't think we can love. So s spend a minute, Bishop, talking about how you find your way to preserving the love and the common ground, even if you disagree. We were some years ago, this was a number of years ago now, um, uh, the Episcopal Church was wrestling with the question of um, what eventually became articulated in terms of same-sex marriage. Um, but at the time was um, what does um, uh, profound equality in the, in the in the church community look like for LGBTQ folk? Um, I mean, what, what does that look like? And, and so um, a, a number of us, I was, was, was part of that, um, really worked together both to support the LGBT community and, and to um, advocate um, for changing um, not marriage, but who marriage applied to. Uh, we weren't changing the base, you know, and, and, and this was a reinterpretation of tradition of, of longstanding ancient traditions. Um, anyway, you can well imagine this was a real conflict in the church. Um, it was a real um, and had gone on for a number of years. And it really was, but it was just a real conflict. And I was Bishop of North Carolina um, at the time. And um, um, at the time, uh, Gene Robinson, who was a priest in New Hampshire, was elected as the Bishop of New Hampshire. And it just, everything just blew. 
everything just to think that there would be a, a partnered gay bishop. Um, it just blew. And the worldwide Anglican communion, I mean, I mean, England, I mean, the Church of England awoke. Um, there were reactions around the world. I mean, it, it went on. In the context of that time, I relearned some training I had had years before in nonviolent ways of communication and social change. I relearned that you may, you've got to learn how to, to both kneel and stand at the same time. Mm. To kneel in a sense before even the person you disagree with, but, but to, to see them as they, they are a child of God, made in the image of God. Um, they are, as Martin Buber said, they are thou, not it. Mm -hmm. thing. They are thou, even though you disagree with them. And even though they're yelling at you, they are thou, not it. They are your brother, your sister, your sibling. You must kneel in your heart before them. And at the same time, you must stand up for the convictions that you hold. You've mm -hmm. got to learn to both kneel and stand at the same time, not just stand, because that's a self-righteousness that can be, it's just be destructive. And not kneeling, that's capitulation. But to kneel and stand at the same time. And, and I relearned it. And, and it's hard. Um, I mean, John Lewis, I've heard had heard, I've heard him say, not the way of nonviolent love is not easy. And yet it will set you free. And so in the course of that whole transformation, um, I was not popular very often. And, and there were those who disagreed with me to the point of, of anger. And, and I remember one time uh, my daughter and one of her friends were, came to the office with me for something. And we were going, it was a Saturday, we were going somewhere. And we stopped by the office and she was, I don't know, maybe 10. She and one of her friends were in the car. And she said, can we come in the office with you? I said, yeah, why do you all want to? Coming off, she said, "Oh, we want to see your hate mail." <laughs> and this was in the days when you actually got real mail. You got said, mail. It was real mail, yeah. Um, and so it was in that kind of context that I, that what I learned from those folk as a child: never let anybody drag you so low as to hate them. Mm. It will consume you, um, and it will hurt them. And so. <laughs> That became my mantra, kneel and stand, kneel and stand. Um, and, in, and I intentionally did stuff like uh, adding on my little prayer list, some of the people who were maddest at me. Um, you know, and it's, again, and it's- pray for them. Huh? And pray for them. And pray for them. Yeah, yeah, actually have to, it, it helps. It doesn't solve it all. It doesn't, you know, we're human. Um, and yet we can be, in partnership with a higher power, mm -hmm. my lower self can be raised up to some nobility and grandeur. Yeah, you know the 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 uh, what you just mentioned about Martin Buber, who is one of my favorite philosophers to read, and the it thou one of my other favorite writers is James Baldwin, and it reminds me uh, of his book. No one knows my name, my name about being an it, yes. invisible, not a person. Yes. And yes. when we know them as a person, it's by definition seems like harder to hate. It actually is. It, 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 it really is harder when nobody- You might be generally, like, you know- I mean, Abstract, yeah, that's- yeah. But- and I'll tell you when it gets, my daddy did used to say, I don't know, he wasn't talking about hatred specifically, but he said, you know, never judge a book by its cover, always read the book. Mm -hmm. And and what I think he meant, I never asked him when, you know, some of these things your parents and people say, you didn't ask them when you were a kid. But what I think he was getting at was that if you listen to the story of anybody, you will discover if they are angry and negative, there's a reason, there's a story behind that. Yeah, there's a story. There's a story there. And sometimes when you know that story or their story, um, you can at least understand. One of the ways, um, I mean, one of the ways that you actually work to bring about social healing, um, I mean, obviously you have to change some things in society, but one of the ways that you do that between people is you let them share each other's stories, share and listen to each other's stories. 
And there are, it's, it, it, walls do come down. It's like the walls, of Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, you know, in the Bible. It's like the walls come tumbling down because when I actually listen to your story and you listen to mine, there's an intimacy being shared there. And when that intimacy is being shared, then there is common ground being created. You may not agree, but there's a relationship. That's what Boober was teaching us. Right. I vow relationships don't aren't predicated upon agreement. They are predicated upon honoring each other's God-given humanity. And yeah. that creates common ground. If both of us, um, you know, and we've actually seen a little bit of it. Um, I, this isn't in the book, but um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anton Scalia. Right, who were buddies. Yes, and I, they didn't agree on a whole lot. And maybe they anything. Been, <laughs> I, I was thinking maybe anything, yeah. And and yet there was something they shared each one. There was the in the RB, RBG. I mean, I love the RB, the notorious RBG. Only in America could you have the notorious RBG. Anyway, in the documentary that was on CNN a while back about her, I mean, they, they asked her about the friendship between the two of them. And she said, Well, we, you know, we both love to travel. And so we and our spouses would travel together. And then she said, We both loved opera. Um, and she used the word loved each time. It was real interesting. She, we both loved opera. And then she said, and this was powerful. She said, and we both have a deep, profound love and respect for the Constitution of the United States. Mm -hmm. and she just said, we the people of the United States of America in order to form a more perfect union went on. It was like a shared common love created a common human space where two people who disagreed profoundly were able to do it in love and charity. Mm -hmm. That's powerful stuff. I mean, yeah. and, 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 it, and it happens more often than, you know, we, it does, but it takes people actually knowing each other. Yeah. Depth. Um, you know, one of the best things I learned from my dad, who was an immigrant and knew what it was like, and a Holocaust survivor and knew what it was like was really? to be invisible. That was a great listener and loved everybody's story. And I'd watch what the power of being heard would do to the guy sweeping in the supermarket or the toll booth collector or, you know, in the slightest interaction, he could create the sense and understanding that that person was being heard. They could have talked for hours telling their story. Yeah. Right. People yeah. want to tell their story. Sure. We're actually much more interesting than we realize all the time. We actually are. So before we close, I want to get down a little bit in the gossip world for a minute. In the gossip world? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you stay with me here. Okay. Okay. So you're home or you're somewhere in, you know, a few years ago and you get a call uh, from this like, I don't even know who, I'll ask you who, saying, how would you like to come to St. George's oh. at Windsor Castle and give a little talk at a little royal wedding? Uh -huh. so, so let's start with this. Who called you and what they say? <laughs> well, actually, it was a I member of my- These calls. It was, I was traveling. I don't remember where I was, but I was en route somewhere. Um, and actually came from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, oh just him, he called. Okay, so he got the he got this one member of my staff, Chuck Robertson, um, or his office got Chuck, um, and then the Archbishop explained to him um, that he needed to talk with me. So whenever I landed, wherever I was, um, I called, and where well, we had to get through time zones, but I mean, I, I eventually got like the next day, um, got the Archbishop, and and the way he said it was, um, um, he's been working with the couple. And they were talking about preachers for the thing, for the service. And he said, if you were asked, would you be available to um, offer the address, is what is England to call it, and it offered the address at the, the upcoming royal wedding on, on the date that it was on. And, and you know, I'm thinking like, well, I need to check my calendar, but I mean, <laughs> Clearly, my calendar could get cleared. And actually, we'll, we'll get free. Yeah, I think I could work something out. Uh, 
But in all honesty, when the staff member called me to tell me what it was about, I thought it was a spoof. I honestly did. I said, yeah. what, is, what do you really want? I mean, get out of here. What do you want? What do we talk? So I didn't actually believe it. Um, and then couldn't tell anybody for a while because it had to go through approvals. And there were approvals and things that, that I say it kind of has to go from palace to palace um, and have various levels of approval and, and that kind of thing. And um, it was about a couple of weeks later that I knew for sure. But even then I couldn't say anything because they really were trying to manage media, expect me, the media yeah. uh, and, and not have things dribbling out. Um, and which I certainly understood. And so I couldn't even tell my wife for about a month. But, you know, I remember, I'm sure this was true for the other billions of people watching it. And you got up there and you started speaking. And I wasn't struck by the fact that you were a black minister up there, but I was struck by the fact that you were going right into fiery, you know, you were finding your Baptist DNA there. And I thought, you know, it was like stunning. It was stunning to listen to. And did you ever think that you should give a more buttoned up uh, sermon <laughs> given where you were and what was, and the queen was there? Yeah, I, I, I moderated. I, just, I, I really did moderate a little bit. I'm just, in fact, there was a moment at which I almost stepped out of the, the little, it was a lectern. And I, and I realized, no, don't, because I like to walk when I yeah. speak. Nah, I've, I've pushed this gang about as far as I need to. <laughs> just kind of, kind of stayed put. A funny thing did happen. It's in the, I, I haven't actually looked at the, the video. But there was a point at which I was quoting the old spiritual, the bomb in Gilead, B-A-L-M, yeah, yeah. from Jeremiah. You know, is there no bomb in Gilead to heal? And so there's, it's a healing bomb. And I was quoting the spiritual, and I knew it might not be that familiar in Britain, so I wasn't, but I, so at one point I, you know, said, you know, there is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. And I could see a security guy just out of the right side of my corner. And he looked up quickly and I added a healing bomb um, <laughs> <laughs> to make the work, just in case he did. I didn't want to get jumped. Right? Yeah, let me spell that for you. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, did you, did you love doing it? Yeah, I, I I loved it more after it was over. After yeah. I had done it, um, I mean, just the pressure of it. But were you nervous? Well, certainly beforehand, but not once you're in the moment. It yeah. was a wedding. It, it was a wedding. And it's adrenaline. It it yeah. And 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 in all honesty, it the they became a couple. I've married couples, been doing it for almost 40 years now. Yeah. And and it, in the moment, we were in church. It was a service. It was a church wow. service in all, you know, clearly a different congregation, but but a church service. Um, my wife, the part she loved was. Elton John kissed her hand. She just yeah. <laughs> probably still hasn't washed her hands since then. <laughs> I don't know. That choir was pretty great. Oh my gosh. And the uh, unbelievable. The oh my God. They were they were incredible. Yeah. It was it was and they it, were sweet people too. They and somebody said, Oh, did they did you bring them from America? I said, No, they're from London. <laughs> right, right. Well, so we're we're a little bit over, and you've been gracious oh. enough to say it was only bedtime keeping you from sure. us. So let me do a couple of things uh, to wrap up. One is I'm going to take a couple of uh, questions. Uh, one is I, I like this one. What's your favorite hymn? My favorite what? Hymn. You know, actually, it. It, it actually is the Baum and Gilead one. Um, I mean, I mean, that's a, I mean it, it, it really is that one. I just love that hymn, partially because it talks about unselfish love as the healing Baum and Gilead. Yeah. It, it, it really does. And it acknowledges, I mean, you think about people who were slaves singing this, who had, talk about absence of hope, who had no earthly hope that was discernible. Um, um, singing, sometimes I feel discouraged and think my life's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. Oh, there is a bomb in Gilead. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's almost as though when you hear that, them singing, it's like they're having a conversation with Jeremiah centuries ago across time. They're yeah. saying, Jeremiah, there is a bomb in Gilead. 
we understand what you're talking about when when you talk about life being hard and there's hope don't give up it's it's a remarkable anyway that's so that's the quick answer you're gonna make me go back and read all of that <laughs> oh yeah oh, jeremiah was yeah he it's amazing to think that they literally it's like there's a conversation going across across the centuries yeah i asked is there no bomb in gilead and they yeah. answer him there is bishop what do you think uh in this kind of divisive environment the institutional role of the Episcopal Church should be in politics. In politics? Yeah. To continue to be an advocate for what is just and humane and decent and kind and compassionate, not from our own self-interest, but for the good of those that we could easily forget. Mm. The, the church is job and I think the faith and we work ecumenically and in interfaith uh, with uh, even in DC but in coalitions because you need all of us together sometimes to get um, get attention um, our job is not to engage our own self-interest but it is it is to advocate for those who don't have somebody who don't have big lobbies um, to represent that and also to be instruments of real human reconciliation across difference that, yeah. that we've got to make e pluribus unum from, from many one. We've got to make it real and we've got to make this democracy work. And part of the key to doing that is helping us to be in relationship with each other and learn how to love each other. Yeah. I mean, that's, and so we've got to do that. And that's as important as social change in terms of politics and economic policy and that kind of thing, helping us to change the human heart and relationships between us. Um, we've we've just got to do it um i mean the democracy this democracy depends on it and frankly human civilization does mm. so in in the book uh this was the question we were talking about a while ago and 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 i want to close with with two things so you have you lay out nine steps that any of us oh <laughs> can take mm -hmm. And there was there was one. I, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna recite them. Everybody's got to buy the book and they they can read it. Um, but there are real concrete steps that you lay out. And there was one that seemed so simple, yet so many of us probably don't do it. And that is, you say, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Recall that the opposite of love is in hate, it's selfishness. Striving to look outward at the common good whenever possible is about as countercultural as you can get in this country. And, and the recommendation is, can you take 15 minutes a day, just 15 minutes, you know, take it away from Instagram or some other, you know, social right. media rabbit hole you go down. You don't say that. I'm saying that. Um, take 15 minutes a day to check in with family or a member of your community to find out how they are and whether you can help. Can you commit weekly or monthly time to a goal that benefits others? So 15 minutes a day, every day to just pick up the phone and just check in with somebody. Check in with somebody, yeah. And at the end, after you lay out these nine steps, which also was easy to imagine, imagine if you will, I'm reading from the Bishop's book, the impact of each and every person on this planet, taking the time to define and then live our loving principles. In fact, imagine 50% of everybody doing this and being being successful only half the time. Politics, business, and commerce, religious life, and the community would be transformed. There is no doubt, no doubt in my mind, transformed. Transformed. Congress would be different. The corporate world would be different. Our religious traditions would be different. Our country, our world, 
Dr. King said, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do, we will make of this old world a new world because love is the only way. Mm. And he was right. And we can so, Bishop we can Michael <laughs> Bishop Michael Curry, um, I have loved this conversation. I am, yes, in love with you. I love you too. You're awesome. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> and I I will become your, you know, evangelical All right. out there. Uh, getting uh, the message out. This is, uh, you know, you probably all know we've been talking with the uh, most reverend Bishop uh, Michael Curry, the author of Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. Bishop, this is such an important message at the right time when it feels, you know, dark and scary uh, to remember that we can, we can each do something. We can. we can each do something. We don't need to be you. We don't need to be the president. We just need to be whoever little person we are and, yeah. and, and make it happen. So thank you for getting that message out there. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you for what you do. You are bringing light. I'm telling you. He, somebody said, I, where did I see it? I saw it on a, a poster somewhere that said, if you can't travel, read a book and you can travel the world. Mm. Thank you for helping us to travel the world and make a different world. That's what you do, Roxanne. Mm. I'm in your fan club. All right. Well, we'll, All we'll right. meet each other's pals. Bishop Michael <laughs> Curry, thank you so much. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>